Oh my, thank you so much. I, I do feel the same way. I'm some of the, um, so thankful for this church, and uh, some of my favorite people are here in this church, seeing Greg and getting to spend some time with him. Um, Jordan Strand is one of my favorite uh, evangelists that I know. I love this guy so much. He inspired. We walked into a restaurant last night, and all of these students were at this prom, and one of the guys goes, no way, Mr. Strand, and they all mob this. I'm like, I love this guy. It's just so, it's so great. And, uh, and Ryan Chase uh, is one of, and Barbara are just amazing people. I'm so thankful for my friendship uh, with Ryan and for Ryan's heart for the lost uh, and the way God is using him. So it has been my privilege to know him. One of my favorite people, though, in Sioux Falls is Caleb Chase. He is one of my favorite. I love this guy, and we get together, and all we talk about are Disney movies. That's what, what, and now we've moved over to Illumination. We're just on that. So, Caleb, I'm so thankful for you, thankful for my friendship with you. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, I want to, we're going to be in verse 35. I want to read an article to you. In the winter of 1925, a small Alaskan town called Nome, which is situated on the edge of the Arctic Circle, found itself in the, on the brink of an unimaginable crisis. An outbreak of diphtheria threatened to wipe out the entire community of 1,400 people. Nome's lone physician, Curtis Welch, feared that if the infection spread, it could destroy the surrounding communities, totaling 10,000 people. The outbreak began in December of 1924 when Welch saw what he thought were cases of tonsillitis. But when the number of cases grew and children began to drop dead, he feared the worst. Diphtheria is a highly contagious bacterial disease that attacks the respiratory system. Well, fortunately, a cure was available, an antitoxin. The problem was that the antitoxin was almost 700 miles away. And there was no way for a boat to get it there because they were completely iced in. And there was no way for a plane to get it there because all the planes ever made were open-air planes. The only way to get it there was by dog sled. The U.S. Post Office recruited, recruited their best dog sled teams, a total of 20, and positioned them along the route. The entire route ordinarily took the Postal Service 25 days to cover, but Dr. Welch could not wait that long because the serum lasted only six days and people were dying. The dogs would have to complete the journey in less than a quarter of the normal time. The journey began on the night of January 27th. The first musher left with his team of 11 dogs, and the temperature dropped to negative 50 degrees. He developed hypothermia, and by the time he had completed his 52-mile leg, three of his dogs were dead. 
The serum then made its way from one musher to the next. Some dogs collapsed from frostbite, and one musher had to hook up the harness to himself to help pull his own sled. One musher got hit with an 80-mile-an-hour gust as a storm rolled over Alaska. His sled flipped, and the serum launched into the snow. He had to take off his gloves and dig through the snow with his bare hands to find it. He got frostbite on his hands. The storm that ripped over Alaska brought the wind chill to negative 85 degrees. One of the mushers made a dangerous drive across the Norton Sound with his lead dog, Togo, navigating the way in the blinding storm. And then Balto led the last dog sled team into Nome with the precious serum. Altogether, it took them five and a half days, and the entire town was saved. The men who led these dog sled teams, they saw the desperate need. They saw the helplessness of of people who were dying. They had compassion on them, and that compassion moved them. They sacrificed, and they saved that town. And what a joy they must have felt to be a part of that rescue mission. Well, Jesus is also on a rescue mission. And we see that in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is on a rescue mission. He is going throughout all, it says, all the cities and villages. He's going from town to town. And Jesus is doing two things as he goes into these villages. He is proclaiming the gospel, and he is healing the sick. I just love this picture of Jesus. Think about him coming into these towns, every town, and healing all of their sickness. Proclaiming the gospel and healing everyone. Think about the joy. This is a picture of, of God bringing blessing, the heart of God to bless us, to bring joy, to bring wholeness to us. And this is what Jesus is doing everywhere that he goes. And it's also what the early church does in Acts. They are preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Jesus is on a mission. But why? Why is he on this mission? Well, we see in verse 36, it's because people are harassed and helpless. 
They're like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep are extremely temperamental and vulnerable creatures. Without a shepherd, sheep immediately form this pecking order and they start to knock each other away from grass or away from not allow each other to sleep. They become anxious and in terrible turmoil. They're incredibly vulnerable to being picked off by predators. They make terrible decisions on their own and they often starve or become dehydrated because they can't find food or water. Sheep are probably the clearest example of helpless creatures. Now, human babies are the most helpless creatures at birth, but they eventually are able to take care of themselves, at least in theory. Sheep, however, sheep remain helpless for the duration of their lives. And so when Jesus sees these sheep, when he sees all the crowds in all the cities, his response is compassion. Now, the Greek word used here, which I can't pronounce, is much stronger than compassion. It means when he saw the crowds, it was gut-wrenching. His heart went out to them. And I just love this about Jesus. He has great compassion on them. They have no shepherd. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're, they're getting harassed. They're getting beat up. They're leading each other astray. They're, they're being led to the slaughter. And Jesus is moved by this. It brings out compassion in him. During World War II, a man named Oskar Schindler, who was a member of the Nazi party, he ran a factory in Poland, and he hired many Jews to run that factory. As the war progressed, Oskar began to notice the way the Nazis were treating the Jews and how it kept getting worse and worse. In the movie Schindler's List, there is a scene where Schindler is up on a hill on his horse, and the Nazis are, I hate this word, but this is the word they use, they're liquidating the ghetto, the Krakow ghetto. They're just pulling Jews out of their homes and shooting them and shipping them off in trains to the concentration camp. And there's a, a picture, the, the whole movie's in black and white, and Schindler looks down and he sees this little girl in a red coat. It's the only thing in color. And he sees her, and she's walking through the street as people all around her get shot. And later in the movie, he sees the body of that girl with her little red coat shot dead, lying on a cart. In that moment, Oscar Schindler vowed to do everything in his power to save as many Jews as possible. In the beginning of the movie, Schindler did not see the Jews. But in that scene, he saw them. 
he saw that they were harassed and helpless, and he had compassion. And that compassion moved him to save them. Jesus had compassion. When he saw the lost sheep in all the towns of Israel, he saw them. He had eyes to see people that were lost, people that were harassed. Do you have eyes to see the lost? To see that people are being harassed? I I often don't. I'm often too busy thinking about myself, and I'm convicted about that. Commentator Charles Price says, compassion comes from seeing people in their true state. Praying for compassion is not likely to be very effective. Opening our eyes to see people as they really are is the true source of compassion. Brothers and sisters, non-Christians are lost. They are helpless. And Jesus saw them in their true state. He saw that they were separated from God, that they were storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Do we see them in their true state? There are people all around us who don't know Jesus and the enemy is harassing them day and night. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, they're being deceived, they're being harassed. People all around us are hurting. They're anxious and depressed and dejected and lonely and suicidal. They're being funneled down a path of destruction, deceived into thinking that the things of this world, the ideas, the promises, the philosophies of this world will bring them joy. Well, guess what? It's not working. They live in pain and sorrow and hopelessness. And they're helpless. They can't get out. They can't break their chains. They can't save themselves. And when Jesus saw this, his compassion welled up inside of him. Do we have compassion when we see the lost? I often don't. I can see the lost as a problem. I can look down on people whose lives are messed up. I can view them as not worth the effort, and I can at times even see them as the enemy. Jesus didn't see them this way. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see you this way? Aren't you glad that when Jesus looked at you, He had compassion. Jesus sees them as lost sheep. He sees them with compassion. But there's another problem besides the fact that people are harassed and helpless, and this is a major problem, and it's this. We don't have enough people to help them. The other problem is that the harvest is plentiful, 
but the workers are few. That's verse 37. The problem is not that the harvest is plentiful. We usually want a plentiful harvest, and if there isn't anything to harvest, that's an even bigger problem. But this harvest is the lost sheep that need to be rescued. It's the lost men and women who need to hear the gospel. The problem that Jesus highlights is not the harvest. There's plenty to harvest. It's that we don't have enough people to do the work. We, we don't have the workers. There aren't enough people in the fields. The crop is going to die. People are going to die, and Jesus wants to help them. Now, Jesus switches analogies here. He could have stuck with the sheep and the need to rescue them, but he switches to a huge field that can't be harvested. This is a major tragedy. Bringing in a harvest is supposed to be a time of celebration and joy and blessing, but a harvest that's wasted and dies is, is cause for great sorrow and mourning. I read an article recently of one farmer in California that had to allow millions of strawberries to rot because there was no one to harvest them. I read another farmer was forced to plow 300,000 heads of fresh lettuce into the ground because he couldn't find any workers to harvest them. Do you see the massive harvest all around you? Your neighbors, co-workers, family members, friends, classmates, waitresses, people at the gym, people at the grocery store, at the bank, at Starbucks, your mechanic, your hairdresser, your mailman. There are plenty of lost people. We have not run out of them. There are non-Christians all around us. It's a huge harvest field. And the heart of Christ is to help them. And he wants us to help him with the harvest. We can make a difference in this. You can almost hear Jesus encouraging us, saying, we can do this. We had a man from our church two weeks ago. His name is Romeo. He gave his testimony on Easter. Romeo said that six months ago, he was an atheist, and he worked hard to try to plant seeds of doubt in Christians to convince them that God was not real. Well, his son, Antonio, who had been coming to our church for three months, brought him to our bridge course. And each week as he heard the power of the gospel, the Lord softened his heart and saved him. And he declared on Easter Sunday, he said six weeks ago, six months ago, I was an atheist and now I am a follower of Christ. And one of the things he said is that he is so amazed by grace. He said, I couldn't get over that word grace. I just kept doodling it and writing the word grace all over my notes. And I wrote acronyms for grace. And, and just he was amazed by grace. Are we amazed by grace? We have the privilege to go out and tell people about this grace. We can show them how they can be rescued. We can bring them to the good shepherd. We just need 
to join Jesus in the field. God wants to use us to rescue people who are lost. Now listen, I know it's hard. And I know it's easy to feel guilty as soon as we start talking about evangelism. They, they feel guilty. I feel guilty. We, we can feel condemned. We feel like failures when it comes to this, don't you? I feel like a failure. But let's not allow the flesh to condemn us and to convince us that we'll never change. Let's not ignore what God is doing this morning. Conviction is a gift from God, and so is repentance. And God is eager to forgive us and to change us. He doesn't just leave us where we are. He changes us and conforms us into the image of Christ. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we are seeing what God wants us to be like. And brothers and sisters, we are not on our own. We have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working in us to help us become more like Christ. And in this passage, good news, Jesus tells us what we should do. Look at verse 38. He says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So number one, the first thing we need to do is pray. We need to pray. Please note who we are praying to. We are praying to the Lord of the harvest. That means that he, God, is in charge of the harvest. He's overseeing the whole thing. We are not in charge, and that's good news. It's not up to us to do this on our own. God is the key in evangelism. That is really good news. We don't have to put undue pressure on ourselves or think that it's all up to us. It's not. It's up to God to bring lost sheep into the fold. Now, we do have a role to play, an important role. We're called to befriend the lost and to share the message of the gospel. We have to get to work in the field. But God is the one that does the heavy lifting. God is behind everything we want to see happen. We need God to direct us to people, to give us favor with them, to open their hearts, to convict them of sin, to give them a clear understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross. We need God to regenerate their hearts, to give them the gift of faith and repentance and to save them. We can't do any of that. Which is why prayer is so critical. It's why Jesus says we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the Father. And it's why Jesus says we should pray earnestly. We should pray fervently. This is where spending time with non-Christians and seeing how lost they are will help us. It will produce compassion, which in turn naturally leads to prayer. Mark McCloskey says, if you want to develop a burden for the lost, go out and talk to the lost and find out how lost they really are. Spending time with those who don't know the Lord will fuel our prayers. It's like praying for an orphan that you're sponsoring in Africa. We 
prayed as a family periodically for the kids that we sponsored through Covenant Mercies. But when I traveled to Zambia and saw the little girl we sponsored, a girl named Prudence, and I saw where she lived, and I saw what her life was like, I felt deep compassion, and it compelled me to pray in ways that I never have. Now, I also bawled and wept all over this poor little girl, this big white guy. I probably traumatized her. But it, it moved me. And it's the same with the lost. Spend time with them, and you will pray for them. And you will pray earnestly. But what do you pray? Well, first, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest field. Pray that the one who is sovereign in salvation will send out laborers into the harvest. This passage is emphasizing the need for laborers. Jesus is in the middle of the harvest, and he wants us to join him. The problem is not with the harassed sheep that are lost and running away from God, or the availability of the ripe wheat, which is the readiness of people to hear and receive the gospel. It's that we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough laborers to get into the fields. We don't have enough Christians who will do the hard work of reaching the lost. We, we don't have enough Christians who are willing to sacrifice to reach men and women with the gospel. So we must pray. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray for the mission? Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for evangelists and, and missionaries? Do you pray for the spread of the gospel? So that's number one, we need to pray. Number two, we need to go. It's not enough to just see the need it's not enough to just feel compassion or even to pray. We must go. Prayer leads to going. As followers of Christ, it's not an option for us to keep the message of the gospel to ourselves. We have to reach out to the lost. Not just send someone else. Not just the bold people. Not just the extroverted people. Not just the mature Christians or the gifted evangelists or those on the mission field or those on a church plant, but us. Now, where do I get this from? Well, I get this from chapter 10. Notice that Jesus didn't just set up a series of prayer meetings to pray for the lost. He immediately sends out the disciples to do what he's been doing. Jesus didn't intend to be the only one in the harvest field. He always intended for his followers to be doing the harvesting. He hinted this in Matthew at this in Matthew chapter 4 when he said, I will make you fishers of men. So there is a significant transition taking place here. Jesus has been the one doing all the ministry. He's out front. He's preaching the gospel. He's teaching. He's healing the sick. The disciples are bringing up the rear. They're more like crowd control. They're kind of carrying their bags. They're kind of like the, the, the bench players on an NBA team. Do you ever see this? Their job is just to bring a lot of hype. So if somebody like slam dunks it, they're like, oh, whoa, and they hold each other back a lot. And they're, they're just kind of like the hype. You know, so maybe Jesus like, you know, raises somebody from the dead. They're like, whoa, whoa, get a picture of it. You know, that's, the, that's all the disciples are doing. But now, all of a sudden... 
there is a huge transfer, a passing of the baton. Now Jesus is pushing them up front. He was the one doing all of the ministry, and now he's sending them out to do the ministry. So the disciples are an answer to prayer, specifically his prayer to send forth laborers into the harvest. Oh, great, we got 12 guys. All right, here we go. Now, you might be saying, you might object to this and say, well, listen, those are the 12 disciples. The disciples, those guys, that, those are the apostles. I mean, some of those guys wrote scripture. I mean, they're the all-stars. I'm not. Well, they're actually not all-stars. They're actually nothing special. One commentator said that the picture of the disciples is of sheer ordinariness. They are the unspectacular raw material that God delights to work with. Aren't you glad that God delights to work with unspectacular raw material? And if you're still not convinced, in Luke chapter 10, after sending out the 72, Jesus then sends, after sending out the 12, Jesus then sends out the 72. So if the disciples were the bench warmers, these guys are the D-League, right? These are the developmental league players. They're just regular old followers of Christ. We don't even know their names. That's because they're us. It's because all followers of Christ are called to help others become followers of Christ. But it ain't going to be that easy. In our bridge course years ago, we had a guy that went through bridge. His name was Bill. And after bridge, we do this bridge study. At the end, we were talking about going to church. And Bill's kind of an old school guy. He was a blue collar kind of guy. And so I said, so Bill, are you going to be going to church on Sundays? You're going to be joining us for church? And he goes, well, it ain't going to be that easy. And I was like, oh, okay, Bill. So why? You know, why isn't it going to be that easy? He goes, well, spring and all. Meaning like springs here. I don't know. He's got to mulch and got to do a lot of yard work. I think that phrase is very helpful when it comes to evangelism. Well, it ain't going to be that easy, right? It ain't going to be that easy when it comes to reaching out to the lost. As we get into chapter 10, we see a gathering storm. And Jesus tells us about this. Now, Jesus is going to take the brunt of this storm. The opposition will be intense and unrelenting. Jesus is going to experience resistance and violence until the end, until they finally get him and have their way with him. And that's part of his calling and his mission. And listen, it's true for us as well. Like Jesus we will be opposed in our mission to reach the lost. And guess what? It's getting worse. The message of the gospel, that we are all sinners that deserve hell and can only be saved through the death of Christ, is not a popular message. In fact, everything we believe is basically offensive. Are you aware of that? That what we believe is offensive. We have lost whatever popularity at one time we had. We are increasingly seen as hateful, unethical, and oppressive, and the opposition is growing, which should not surprise us. Jesus prepared us for this. He prepared us for it in Matthew 10. So look there in Matthew 10. So Jesus selects the 12 
apostles. He calls them. And then in verse 7, it says, he sends them out. He says, and proclaim as you go. So he's giving them directions. This is what we need to do. Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead. So here it is. There's our proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. And then in verse 14, it says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, wait a second. You mean we're going to go out and some people are not going to receive us? Some people are not going to listen to our words? I imagine the disciples, you know, they're already kind of scared to death and they're starting to say, hey, wait, did you, did you, know, did you know about this? Did, you, did he talk to you about this before? And, and then he says in verse 16, which has got to be the absolute worst motivational speech that has ever been given in the history of motivational speeches. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Think about this. Sheep against wolves is no competition. I did some research on this years ago. I think it was like sheep have 16 teeth, wolves have like 32. A sheep runs really slow. A wolf runs like three times as fast. This is not, this is not good news. This is not helpful for the sheep. I mean, imagine the disciples are in there like, okay, Jesus is like, okay, everybody get in here, everybody bring your hands in, okay, count of three, sheep among wolves, okay, ready? One, two, three, sheep among wolves, all right, let's go. Sheep among wolves, sheep among wolves, sheep. So, wait, what? Sheep among wolves? I mean, Jesus is basically saying, you're dead meat. You're going to be chewed up. This is not very encouraging, is it? And then he says in verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings. My goodness. Then verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. Family members are are going to deliver one another over to death and, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Anybody want to sign up for this mission? Come on, you're going to be hated by all for my namesake. I mean, this is extreme. Then verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now, now they're fugitives. You're a fugitive. Verse 25, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those? You're, you're going to be maligned. You're going to be called Satan. And then verse 26, so have no fear of them. What? Have no fear. You've just put as much fear as humanly possible into me. Why is Jesus saying this? Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus gives us this eternal perspective. Oh, they may be able to harm us physically, but they can't touch our soul. And then he says in verse 32, so, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, so now it's not an option. 
It's not an option for us to do this. We, we can't just wait for them. We have to speak up. We can't deny him. We have, to, we have to acknowledge him. And then verse 34, do not think I've come to bring peace to this earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Any person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, you have to put the mission above family. You have to take up your cross. You have to be even willing to die. Yikes. I mean, when I became a Christian, I did not know I was signing up for this. It feels like you're signing up for the Cub Scouts and you end up on Paris Island for the Marine Corps boot camp. But listen, when you became a Christian, you may not have realized it, but you signed up for a mission to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. And as we seek to carry out that mission, we will meet with opposition. Like Jesus, we'll be opposed. This doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. In fact, it means we're doing something right. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And church, we have to be prepared for this. If we are going to be faithful stewards of the gospel message, if we're going to be a church that reaches into the darkness, we have to be able to absorb the blows of the opposition. Like boxers, we have to be able to take some hits. One of my favorite movies, or some of my favorite movies, are the Rocky movies. And the Rocky movies are all about taking hits. Spoiler alert, Every Rocky movie is basically about him getting beat up, and at the end, he kind of gets up and wins. So sorry to ruin it for you guys. But one of my favorite lines in the Rocky movies, I think it's in Balboa, he says this. He says, and I think he's saying this to his son. He says, it ain't about how hard you can, it ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and get up and keep moving forward. And that's truth. That's truth in evangelism. It's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and get up and keep moving forward. Brothers and sisters, we need to be able to take a hit and keep moving forward with the gospel. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us not count it hard but let us be willing to bear scorn and contempt for him. Let us say to ourselves, then did they spit in his face. What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame, since it comes upon me for his dear sake. See that wretch is about to spit in Christ's face? Put your cheek forward, that you may catch that spittle upon your face, face that it not fall upon him again. For as he was put to such terrible shame, everyone who has been redeemed with his precious blood ought to count it an honor to be a partaker of the shame if by any means 
we may screen him from being further despised and rejected of men. There is a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's List when Schindler must flee the country after saving over a thousand Jews. He had risked his life time and time again. He gave the equivalent of over a hundred million dollars of his own money to rescue as many Jewish men and women and children as he could. At the end of the movie, he's standing there with all 1,100 Jews, and just before he leaves, he says to his good friend, Ithac Stern, he says, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I just, I could have got more. And Stern says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. And Schindler says, if I'd made more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. If I had just, Stern says, there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. Schindler says, this car, Goth would have brought this car. Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people, ten more people. He removes his Nazi pin from his lapel and he says, this pin, two people with this pin. This is gold, two more. He would have given me two for at least one. One more person, a person stern for this. And he breaks down sobbing. And he says, I could have gotten one more person. And I didn't. And I didn't. Oscar Schindler saw the Jewish people in their desperate plight. He sacrificed so much to save so many. He was like Christ in this. But he was right. He didn't give everything. Jesus did. Jesus gave everything. Jesus sacrificed his life. When Jesus saw us in our lost condition, as we were barreling toward hell, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, careening toward an eternity of suffering, he had compassion on us. It was gut-wrenching for him, and so he left his throne above. He became one of us. He became the Son of Man. He clothed himself in flesh so that his flesh could be pierced, so that his body could take our curse and absorb our punishment. He gave everything, even his life, to save us from hell. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him and to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. Yes, it can be dangerous. Yes, it is scary. But Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, who gives us boldness to overcome our fears, so that we can reach the lost with the greatest news in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ.